I went to uh, a baseball card shop regularly called Neil Z's. To get there, I had to ride my bike through a neighborhood, and my brothers and I would ride there regularly. <clears throat> and I bought way too many baseball cards, spent all of my money, uh, and then uh, every day uh, I would go there, uh, I would make sure I picked up the most recent um, book that told me the value of the cards uh, that I was uh, purchasing in the packs. Because routinely, I would open a pack up and I would be disappointed because it didn't have one of the, the good ones, right? You're, you're waiting for, uh, uh, I don't know, like one that's like worth a lot of money and, and then it's, it's not in there. So then what I do as a kid uh, is I go through uh, and I say, okay, this one's worth five cents, and this one's worth ten cents, according to this book. This book uh, redeemed uh, this pack of cards for me every single time. And I, and I got to the end of it, and I was like, okay, I didn't, I didn't waste that two dollars on that pack of cards, because I've got, uh, you know, 25 <laughs> five-cent cards here, and I think that makes up for it. Uh, the problem is... Um, those cards really were worth nothing, uh, <laughs> at least uh, certainly back then. Maybe they are now, though. I haven't looked at them in a while. Uh, so perhaps they are of value, right? Um, value, however, is, is often in the, the eye of the beholder uh, or with uh, whatever market changes are happening. I was talking to a, a neighbor the other day. He said he bought his used car for you know, X amount of dollars, $10,000, we'll say, and then two years later sold it in this market, a used car, he sold it for like $13,000. He made money on a used car that he had had for years, right? It's ridiculous. Uh, was it worth that? Well, it is right now, apparently, right? What we're talking about today is, uh, is worship, and, and Beth was certainly on to something when she began talking uh, about uh, what is worth more. The word worship uh, is from uh, an old English word meaning to ascribe worth, right? We're ascribing value to something. We're saying it is worth this much. And in the marketplace of, uh, of gods and religions that are out there, our Christian claim is that our God is worth the most value, right? It is, it is the most valuable thing out there. In fact, Jesus even tells us parables, doesn't he, about this sort of thing. He, he talks about the pearl of great price and it being so valuable that someone's willing to go sell their whole life to buy this one thing. And then he, back to back, says... Uh, uh, another parable in, in which a man finds a treasure in a field. And he, again, he sells everything he's got in life to buy that field because he knows that that treasure is worth more than anything else. This is what we're talking about today. What is the most valuable thing possible? When we talk about worship, we're talking about what is worthy, and what do we ascribe worth to? Before we do, let's begin with a word of prayer.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come in this place and ask for your presence here with us. We ask you to join us. We know that you are already here, but God, reveal yourself to us. Speak to our hearts. Soften them. May our uh, meditations, may our thoughts, may my words be words that are indeed worthy of worship. May, may they bring uh, worship and praise to you. Lord, I pray this morning that for those of us in the room who uh, perhaps have come in uh, with a heavy load, that for these moments, Lord, that you, you lift that up and that you take that away. And Lord, that you clear our minds and make them crystal clear because you've got something you want to say this morning to each and every one of us. God, reveal yourself to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, a few years ago, I read a book by a guy named Mike Cosper. Uh, some of you might know this name, Mike Cosper, because uh, he uh, most recently is semi-famous in uh, Christian sub-circles for a podcast called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, the book that I read, though, is called uh, Rhythms of Grace, and in it, it's a wonderful book. It's, a, it's all about worship. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, and a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today comes uh, from this book, and uh, he spent a lot of time writing it, and so I figure uh, if he <laughs> spent a lot of time writing it, uh, it certainly resonates with me. Uh, this is something that uh, is worth digging into and, uh, and offering to you uh, this morning. In it, he talks uh, about, uh, he calls it Church 123. And uh, I know people in the pews, uh, they, they like their pastors to, to say catchy things. And so this sounded like a catchy thing to me. So uh, here it goes. Uh, church 123, here's what he means. Uh, he says there is uh, one object of worship, right? There are two settings of worship, and there are three audiences to our worship. Okay? You got that? One object to our worship. Any guesses as to what the one object is? Right, it's, it's God, right, indeed. Uh, but it's not just God or any God, it's, it's the true God, which is what we're all aiming at when we, when we offer our praises and our worship up, right? This might seem obvious enough, and, and this is, uh, when I say we're aiming at this, it's to say that God is far bigger than we often give God credit for, right? And so it's possible, and I would even say likely, maybe inevitable, that we think we're aiming at one uh, thing, and that God, it turns out, is, is bigger yet, Right? But it's also to say something else, in, in that God is the object of our worship, as I said, there are lots of other objects that do not deserve our worship. There are lots of false gods out there roaming around. Uh, in fact, I would venture to say all of us at some point in time, maybe on a regular basis, if we're honest, uh, we fall prey to some of the false gods out there, whether it is the worship of money, of power, the worship of education, fame, 
sex, sports. It's a good day to talk about the worship of sports, right? It's real. He talks about two contexts of our worship. Uh, I found this one most illuminating, actually. He talks about worship uh, in uh, the, the sense in which we're in right now, which is gathered worship. We, we gather together every Sunday, and we worship God together. And as has already been said, we worship in a variety of ways, don't we? Right? We, we certainly sing songs. We pray together. We read scripture together. We, uh, we listen to a sermon together. We do lots of things together. And this is our, our gathered worship every Sunday morning. But there's also what he calls scattered worship, which is to say, and what I want to argue, which is that what we're doing right now is, is almost like practice. We'll call it practice for the worship that should be happening everywhere and at all times. So when we leave this place and we go out into the world, we live our lives and we don't have the luxury of being together, the body huddled with the beautiful snow falling around us, the perfect atmosphere, the songs ringing. Well, we've, we've practiced our worship in this place and it propels us to a place out there where the worship continues, where it has shaped us in here so that it might shape us out there as well. So we have our, our scattered worship and we have our, our gathered worship. Lastly, he mentions that there are three audiences, three audiences of our worship. Here again, uh, perhaps the obvious one is, is God, right? Certainly not, uh, no less important just because it's obvious, but, but God is watching. Sometimes when I think about that, God is watching every step, right? Every move we make, there's a police song out there for this, but uh, <laughs> just getting in, I don't know where that came from. Uh, <laughs> the point is, uh, it can be a little terrifying if you think too hard about that one, right? That everywhere you go and everything you do and everything you say and every, everything, God is watching. And you should ask yourself, is this glorifying? Is this, is this praising God? Is this demonstrating that I think God is, is worthy, right, of, of living a life that is different than, than what the world teaches us to live? The second audience, um, and, and this came up this morning. I was very pleased with our Sunday school class this morning. Uh, if you were here uh, in the, uh, the fellowship hall together, the adults, uh, we had a wonderful discussion uh, about worship this morning. And, um, and the second audience is us. It's the church. It's us gathered together. And by me being present in here and you being present in here and us being present together, there's something different that happens. I said it to my table, but I will, it, it should seem obvious to you that right now with about, we'll say, 100 people in this room, it's a whole different worship experience than a couple years ago 
when I'm up here and there's like nine other people scattered throughout this building, right? That's a very different worship experience. And praise be to God that we are gathering together again. But our worship, our worship does have an audience that, that, is, uh, that is also uh, us, together. The togetherness, this is what our series is all about, better together. And by being together, the two or three that are gathered or the hundred that are gathered, there, there's something about our worship together that, uh, that elevates that worship. I'll just, when I hear the uh, sanctuary filled with song, right, that, my, my soul sings out in a way that it, it, it just simply doesn't. Maybe I'm being too honest here, but it can't when, when uh, it's hard to hear you or when, it, when I'm alone even. And there's something about being together and, and worshiping together that I do think has power to it. Ephesians 5, 19 through 21 says it this way. Address one another, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is fascinating. Here it is in Scripture. Right? We're, we're commanded to address to one another the, the, the singing and the melodies and the hymns, and all of this goes up to God as a song together. The third and, and the final audience here uh, that Mike Cosper mentions and that I agree with is, uh, is the world. There's a world that is watching. Now, this is particularly true uh, if, as we go out and we are uh, worshiping in the scattered sort of way, right? But it's also true when the world comes to us, that there's something about our worship that is being watched. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 even mentions it. In verse 24, the context of this is an ancient worship service and specifically, it's talking about prophecy and tongues and charismatic gifts and whatnot. But the larger context of this is, is the gathered worship. And Paul says that if an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Would the world say that if they walked into our worship service this morning? I hope they would. I hope they would fall on their face and they would say, God is really here. That's certainly what we're aiming for. I think more important than even our gathered worship, however, is that scattered worship. As you, having worshiped together on a morning like this, go out into the world and you, you are worshiping God in, in your workplace, in your homes, in your schools, that the world is watching. 
They are watching. The worship that we are doing, it's not a duty. It's not a box that we check off each week. It's not a box that, that somehow makes you a Christian. It's not an obligation to be fulfilled. The worship that we engage in is meant to reshape you for life in the jungles of the world. That's what we're doing here this morning. When we gather together, it's meant to reshape us for what's going on out there. Because your worship is, in fact, being watched by the world. And they will see what you do, and they will see what you love, and they will see how you love others, and they will assume that the God you worship and the faith that you profess, well, that it's just like you, whatever that might be. So who is the God that they see when they look at you? I want to ask the question, and we, again, talked about it this morning, and it was a lovely discussion, but why do we gather for worship? And I've got two answers, and they go hand in hand. Why do we gather for worship? Uh, they, they both sound a bit presumptuous, so uh, just stick with me. Uh, counterformation is, the, is number one. Counterformation. And the idea behind it uh, is, uh, is maybe simpler than it sounds. The claim is that no matter what God we serve, we become image bearers of that God. Twisted in something less than the glory for which we were created is what often happens out there. We get turned into another kind of being. Another sort of God has, has managed to to take its hold on us and twist us in ways that we should not be twisted into. And where you spend your time and where you spend your money, it says a lot about who you are and, and what you value in this life. And here's the hard question. If you were to take an audit of your weekly schedule, what would it tell you about what you value. Where are you spending your time, right? Where, where are you spending your money? And, and then ask the next question, which is, is there a difference between what you profess you value versus what you actually spend your time doing? Is there a difference between what you say you value and what you spend your time doing? This might even be as simple as, you know, I say that I'm a family man, but I really spend all my time doing this other thing, right? I say that I'm a Christian and that I'm steeped in the word, but I'm really doing this other thing. What do you, what do, you do? We all get 24 hours in a day, right? What do you do with your 24 hours? Where does that time go? And what does it tell you about who you are and where you really place your worth? 
But this word counterformation, you see, what's really going on is that the world is indeed twisting us in all of these other directions. It's forming us into certain kinds of people, often not the sort of formation we want. And so when we come together, we have to undo the effects of some of that formation. And in this place, in this time, we need to be bent back to the sorts of people that God created us to be. We are, we are bent back into the sort of humans that God created in the beginning when he made us in the image of God. And we do that through the worship service that we have together. And we're reminded of who we are and whose we are, where we came from, what we've been saved uh, into, and where we're headed to. There's a whole storyline there, isn't there? The storyline, as we often tell it on Sunday mornings, goes like this. We start with some sort of invocation. We, we invite God's presence into this place because we know that without God, in this place and in our lives, we are nothing. That is actually a pretty radical claim these days. I, I don't know that most people would believe that anymore. But it is what we're saying. And then another thing that we do is, uh, and we don't do it every week, and maybe we should, but there's, uh, there's a moment either of silence or, or even just an opportunity for confession. And these uh, opportunity, the, the confession itself of sin uh, is, is probably the most countercultural, counterformational thing that a church actually does these days. It's almost as if sin is just completely missing from the vocabulary of the world anymore. I was scrolling through Facebook, which was a mistake, and I came across uh, one of those like Dear Abby articles, and the person was saying that uh, uh, her father had just passed, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, her mother at her father's passing confessed to her uh, that for the last 10 years she had been in an affair with another man, but she had never told her father. And I was appalled. And then the next line is, I don't see anything wrong with this, but my sister does, and, and we don't see this the same way. And I thought, oh my word, um, where are we? <laughs> How did we get here? And the idea of there being sin that needs to be confessed, that needs, that needs healing, that, that needs the blood of Christ, right? That is like a lost thing. But it is what we come and we do every Sunday morning because it is part of our story. And the confession is, is important. And we retell the story of the gospel, whether it's through our songs whether it's through reading of creeds, whether it's through the sermon itself, whether it's through the scripture that we read every week, right? we, we retell the gospel story. And on a day like today, when we take communion, this is, in my mind, the ultimate retelling of the gospel story. We literally enact it. We get to touch it, and we get to taste it, and we get to smell it. 
And in that moment, we're reminded of where we came from, who we are, and where we're going to. And we are reformed, we are reshaped by this act. We certainly should be. And in that moment, the moment of, of, of taking communion, we, we reestablish our commitments. We make those covenants that we made in the baptismal font. We, we do it all over again every time we take communion. We remind ourselves of the covenant, the, the promise that we made, the person in whom we put our trust, that is Jesus Christ, believing what he did for us and marching forward because we know that ha- that has made all the difference. And the result is that Genesis 1 tells us that we are formed in the image of God. And if we believe that, then we must recognize that when we adopt other gods into our lives, and they form us against the grain of our actual design. And so worship, it reorders us redesigns us into the way we should be living. It reorders our loves and it reminds us of what it means to be human, fully human, and it transforms us into creatures formed into the image of God as we were meant to be. This, by the way, is exactly what Romans 12, 1-2, our New Testament passage this morning, is saying. Paul says it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your lives, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There it is, right? You're you're presenting your whole life as, as worship, is what Paul says. But he goes on and he says, don't be conformed to this world. There's these other forming uh, forces out in the world trying to shape you into something different. But he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Be counterformed by the renewal of your minds. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So what's happening when we worship? Why do we worship? The first one was counterformation. We have to counteract the way in which the world is misshaping us. Secondly, another fancy phrase here, lex orandi, lex credendi is the phrase. It, It simply means... Essentially, what you uh, pray is what you believe. What you pray is what you believe. Or to maybe shrink it down even more, you can tell me what you believe all day long and what you think all day long. But if you're not doing it, you're just not being honest. Because what you do is what you really believe. What you do, how you pray, how you read scripture, how you form your life, that is what you really believe. 
I think there's a Christian trap <clears throat> that opens up. There's a, there's a gulf that opens between what I believe and what I do. What I believe and what I do. And, and here's how it goes. We say, I believe that Jesus is on the throne, right? Jesus has been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's on the throne. And yet what I do is I often worry. And I'm often filled with anxiety. Or I live in service of, of other kings that are out there vying for my worship. Or maybe this. I believe in the power of the word of God. This is what we say, right? I believe in the power of the word of God. But then what I do is I, I fail to really take seriously scripture reading or, or uh, memorization or, or enacting what I am reading in the scriptures. Or what I believe is that I should embody the fruit of the Spirit. But then what I do is I, well, I, maybe I don't love in fact, maybe sometimes I hate. Maybe I don't have joy. Perhaps I'm constantly complaining. Or I don't have peace. And maybe I even threaten the peace of others. Or I don't have patience and I'm constantly in a hurry. You get the idea. There's this gap that opens up between what I do and what I say I believe. It makes you feel any better. Most of us live with that gap. And the goal of a transformed life and the goal of our gathered worship is to pull that gap tighter and tighter every week as a lifelong process of transformation happens. I've uh, mentioned before that hypocrisy is what we're calling this, by the way. Uh, hypocrisy is, is what we say in one hand, but we do something else, right? It's called hypocrisy. And hypocrisy for a pastor is uh, an occupational hazard because I have to get up and I have to say what you should do every week. And then I am supposed to always live that too. And sometimes it works and sometimes that gap opens up, right? And so we're all in this together. We are. And we're working toward closing that gap. But here's an uncomfortable question for you. What gaps are you aware of in your own life that you've, you, you say this one thing, but eh, you really do this other thing? And then perhaps a more uncomfortable question yet is, what gaps are you unaware of? that sit there in your life that your spouse keeps trying to tell you about, but you're just not listening. <laughs> to conclude, um, there's a quote from a guy named John Ortberg, uh, and he's asking essentially the question, why do we need to worship? And I, I don't want you to focus on every single thing he says. Here's what I want you to do in the next two minutes as I read this. I want you to just pick one. Just kind of let that one thing sink in. Whatever it is that you need to hear this morning. Because he says this. He says, I need to worship 
Because without it, I can forget that I have a big God beside me and live in fear. And he's saying, I forget that when I don't worship well, I forget just how big God is, and I often live in fear. And I should do the opposite of that. He says, I need to worship because without it, I can forget his calling and begin to live in a spirit of of self-preoccupation. Is that you? Do we sometimes forget God's calling and instead live in a spirit of self-preoccupation? He says this, I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and I plod through life with blinders on. Have you lost your sense of wonder or gratitude? Do you have blinders on this morning? Because true worship can help with that. I need worship because my natural tendency is toward self-reliance and stubborn independence. And God wants to break you of that. He wants you to depend upon him. And so for all these reasons and so many more, we come this morning to worship. We gather together in worship and we place our crowns before the true king and we ascribe all worth to him and him alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we praise you. Lord, may we be challenged by your scripture and by your word. May we be challenged both in the ways that we fail to live up to the Christian life, but may we be encouraged, Lord, that you have not abandoned us. In fact, you're there waiting for us, ready to lift us up and to move us the next few steps down that road. God, I pray this morning that as we think about what it means to worship you, both in a gathered way and in a scattered way, that, Lord, that this moment and these moments together that they be the, uh, the arena in which we prepare for the world that can be a jungle and that can be a battle and that can be very difficult. And we take solace in you now and we thank you for your goodness. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.